The following episode of the Movie Club podcast can and will contain spoilers. Please be advised. Oh, babies. There's so many of you. Just be cool down the front and don't push around. Just keep still, <laughs> keep together. Oh, yeah. Okay, hello everyone. Welcome to the Movie Club, episode number two. We made it to episode number two, and uh, I'm just going to go around the uh, virtual table here, and everybody can introduce themselves. I'm Sean from Film Junk. I'm Jay from Film Junk. I'm Andrew from MoviePatron.com. Polite Canadians, neither one of us uh, <laughs> take the initiative. I'm Kurt from Twitch. Uh, and I'm Marina from Madibook Movies. So it's going to be a good discussion today. We've got two movies to discuss. Uh, first off, we're going to be talking about uh, the, the Maisel's Brothers film, Gimme Shelter, the Rolling Stones concert film. And uh, also we're going to be talking about Sergio Leone's Duck You Sucker, also known as Fistful of Dynamite. So... Um, it's kind of, uh, in some ways, two very unrelated movies, but uh, I'm sure there's going to be a few connections that we can discuss as well. Um, now, I guess we decided we're going to start with Gimme Shelter. Um, and uh, I don't know, personally, I'm thinking this is going to be an interesting one to talk about. Now, um, maybe I'll throw it to you, Jay, just to briefly give a little synopsis. This was kind of your choice for this particular episode. Yeah, this is uh, <clears throat> one of my favorite documentaries of all time and probably my favorite rockumentary of all time. And uh, it's directed by the Maisels brothers and Charlotte Zwerin gets a credit as well. She's the editor. And the interesting thing about this movie is the it's a concert film, essentially, but, but so much more. And I think it's uh, one of the Maisels brothers' best films it's probably my favorite of their films I, I think salesman is a a better documentary but this is very watchable for me very rewatchable um and i i kind of wanted to bring this into the movie club just to see what everyone else thought of it um so i i'd like to hear start by hearing kind of a, a general idea of everyone's opinions especially people who haven't seen it Okay. Who here had seen it in the past, and who here watched it for the first time? I guess uh, that's worth getting on the table. Uh, this is a first time for me. I just got it on DVD and and just watched it for the first time recently. And I know that I think it was actually re-released in the theaters just a few years ago because it was the 30th anniversary or something. But I actually hadn't even heard of it until uh, until Jay mentioned it for the the movie club. So. Yeah. Ditto. The first time I'd seen it as well. Um, oddly enough, I saw it in July. I was uh, over at a buddy's house, and he just has a massive collection of uh, rock documentaries. And he said, hey, let's just go throw it on. And, and so I thought it was uh, fun when you threw it out again. Um, that being said, it's such a powerful movie, and it's such an engrossing narrative uh, for a doc. 
yeah, I had to watch it again uh, before the uh, show. I, I literally just finished it again an hour ago. So uh, it's really fresh in my mind. Okay. Well, uh, actually, I had never seen it. Uh, you know, I've heard Jay talk about it uh, quite a bit, and uh, I sort of knew the general story but had never seen it. Now, is the Criterion version the only version that's available right now? Yeah. So I guess it's, <clears throat> from what I saw, it seemed like it was a little bit tougher to find, at least just in, you know, your local video store. But um, I don't know. I guess this is definitely a pretty important film, and uh, for a lot of reasons. But um, I don't know. I guess we can start by, I think, Kurt, you may have brought this up either on the movie patron Cinecast or uh, or maybe even on uh, our previous movie club podcast just the fact that it's kind of a a a generational thing it's you know the the end of the 60s beginning of the 70s and uh so the the concert that this was filmed at took place in 69 i believe correct two years after the so-called summer of love and and i guess in a hindsight 2020 thing it's sort of the death knell and you almost every shot the organization the beginning of the concert, all the opening acts. Uh, I mean, compare Janis Joplin and Monterey Pop, which is sort of the beginning of the Summer of Love, and then look at, uh, say, Tina Turner's sort of microphone fellatio <laughs> in uh, in this one, uh, and and the mood is just very different. It's for me uh, what makes it the the, the funeral or, or the sort of the end of the party is it just feels like when you're in a bar. And you just know that a bar fight is going to break out. There's just this mood over everything. Everyone's a little bit angrier. Or there's a tension in the air. All frame of this um, movie. Definitely the second half of uh, Gimme Shelter. You're, you're actually on edge watching it because it's so claustrophobic and tense, which is pretty amazing considering the size of the concert and the openness of the field. But you, you feel... You know, boxed in when you're watching the movie. It's not a happy feeling, and it doesn't it doesn't say summer of love to me. <laughs> no, I mean it kind of. Uh, I don't know. I mean to to set up some of the the backstory for this. Now, I guess the uh, this was the Rolling Stones tour, and the the big thing that happened is the Hell's Angels were working security for this show. And one of the things I was curious about, and I don't, you know, it never really covered it in the film. I was kind of thinking, well, how did they come to be working security? And um, so I, I guess the, I, the the deal is that they had uh, done some security for the Grateful Dead in the past. And, so, you know, the Grateful Dead knew the Rolling Stones and somehow that just turned into something they decided to do. And they did a show in London with the the London chapter of Hell's Angels, and it was fine, no problems at all. But I guess the London Hell's Angels are a slightly different breed than the American Hell's Angels, and uh, so that kind of became the the problem. And they were working security, and they were just you know throwing people around, and it was a real clash of I don't know I don't know if it's ideologies. I mean, some people would say that the Hell's Angels are kind of counterculture people in their own right, but uh, hippies and Hell's Angels kind of don't seem like they mix. No, especially that number of hippies. I mean, an important thing to mention as well is that it's a free concert. Um, So it's this giant celebration that 
uh, we get to see throughout the film as they're planning it and uh, trying to find a, an appropriate venue and finally deciding on the Altamont uh, Speedway. And did anyone notice the connection to Zodiac in this? Nope. The movie Zodiac? The One of my favorite characters in the movie, speaking of the, the whole process of setting up the concert, is the, the white-haired promoter, the fast-talking kind of uh, promoter who's who yeah who is uh marvin belli who oh, is the he's guy and- yeah he's on zodiac the guy that calls in and and talks requests to, to talk to him uh and that's the actual guy in gimme shelter which i thought was in- interesting after having seen zodiac because i didn't know like anything about that guy but he is probably one of my favorite characters in this film just that kind of fast talking he, he talks like someone uh, only, uh, you know, who grew up in the 50s uh, or f- the 40s and 50s would talk. Like, you're, you're never going to find anyone around nowadays that is uh, as, as smooth a talker as that guy. This is the guy with the black rim glasses? Yeah, yeah. He, well, it's interesting. You, you, when you brought up the Hells Angels um, before... That wasn't the only problem, though. It, it, there, there was, it was almost like a perfect storm of problems because they, they switched venues twice. Right. And when they had to do, when they had to move from what was it like the Sears Speedway to the Altamont Speedway, they had 24 hours to disassemble whatever they had set up at one and move it all there. And when you look at the, I mean, I've been to a number of these outdoor festivals and no outdoor festival I've ever been has a stage that is only like eight inches or, you know, whatever, 20 centimeters. I mean, that's the capital problem. Like, even during um, uh, the opening acts during the day, people are just like the stage is full. I think at one point I saw a German shepherd just walk. Yeah, I noticed that too. And I was like, what the <laughs> hell is going on? <laughs> But that, that's that kind of a, the, the impression too that when the Hell's Angels were hired, I think at some point in the movie they talk about how they were paid in you know basically just free admission and all the beer they could drink. Right. Yeah. And I think uh, I think that was a major you know a major thing that sparked the whole deal is these guys were all wasted. I mean, and then as soon as they drive their motorcycles into the crowd. <laughs> I mean, it just escalates from there. Which is an awesome scene. I was just thinking <laughs> that, totally. I, um, I, I'd like to hear other general thoughts on the, on the film, and then I can, I can speak after that. Well, I'll, I'll let you go, Marina. Sorry, I'll, I'll go ahead here, just for a second. I'm not a big Stones fan. Never have been, probably never will be. So I was a little worried when it starts off with the musical number, so I was glad to see that it was more than just a concert film. Um, but I think it starts to go wrong even before there's any mention of the Hells Angels when they are organizing the whole event. Just from the very first moment when you hear this lawyer talk, you just know that he's not really in tune with what's going on. I, I, it's like he was planning for this small little outdoor thing. He wasn't really expecting what... I, I just I can't imagine somebody, uh, even back in the 70s, saying, okay, well, it's a Rolling Stones concert, and not imagining the number of people that were going to show up. It, it just see, it just 
I, I was just so surprised by that. Well, also, it didn't uh, seem like he was in touch with it. Wasn't like when did Woodstock happen? Wasn't it just before this concert, or was it after? It was like seven months, months before, right? So I mean, you got to be assuming that that's kind of the atmosphere of the time, and these are the kind of shows that are happening. I mean, I don't, I don't know yeah. exactly, but yeah. yeah. The Grateful Dead were supposed to play at this show. They backed out for some reason, um, and then of course there's uh, uh, Jefferson Airplane and um, yeah. a number, uh, you know, Tina and Ike Turner, and and there's a number of other musical acts, so they, big big band, uh, big names at the time. So yeah, it, it was a full on festival. Yeah. A one-day thing, but free. Free to me, free means you're going to have people swarm it, regardless of what it is. Well, yeah. exactly. Well, that was actually one of my favorite scenes because I think at some point the dead actually do show up. They helicopter yeah. in, That's and right. um, somebody comes running up to like Jerry Garcia is standing there, and he comes running up and he says, "Yeah, the, the hell hell's angels are beating people, and and there's violence." Garcia's like, "Oh man, that's a real bummer," or something. And then, <laughs> And then I think they just turned around, got in their helicopter, and left. <laughs> <laughs> so that's probably why they backed out, is they heard the craziness that was going on and, and took off. Well, I, I just have to say that um, there were like a shitload of cameramen and maybe camera women in filming. Like, if you look at the credits, they they give credit to all the people that were walking around. Like, you have to imagine how difficult it is to capture good footage at. A massive concert. And fun, funny enough, if you look at all the cameramen, one of the cameramen in there is uh, George Lucas, um, which mm-hmm. I, I believe the story goes is that his camera didn't work. None of his actual shot footage appeared there. But anyways, he was. That's why you have to use uh, digital HD shoot on video, and he wouldn't have had the problem. <laughs> he was thinking that at the time. Um, but it is amazing how product assembled how much of a narrative arc they got and basically I think the and I don't know how much of it is edited out of order um, and whatnot. but I mean one of the first scenes of the concert once the concert starts is Mick Jagger getting off the helicopter or whatever and he's what is he five steps off the helicopter before someone punches him in the face. <laughs> like, I mean yeah. if that isn't such a great piece of foreshadowing and there's so many scenes like that in this movie there's a scene where he's singing sympathy with the devil and there's this hell's angels guy off to the side and it's this brilliant shot he's got this angry look on his face i mean there's two actually there's the first one is just one guy looking like giving big jagger the full-on evil eye and then the second one uh, which is maybe three or four minutes later, um, is a different guy, a guy with sort of long hair, and he's grabbing him, uh, you know, I don't know, having a bad trip, or he's about to go into this full-on rage. And I, I don't even think he was a Hell's Angels guy, the second guy, because they, they pull him off the stage. I don't even know what he was doing on the stage. But it looks like he was melting down right that on was, camera. That was my favorite scene of the whole movie. Are you talking about, it's got, it's kind of a close-up on Jagger while he's singing, and in yeah, the and this background, guy's this guy's just eyeing him, right? And just yeah. sort of looking all freaky and just looking like he's about to snap. Yeah, that... If you look at Mick Jagger, too, you can see that he's kind of rattled, like he'll, he's kind of eyeing the guy out of the side of his, you know, the corner of his eye going, what, who the hell is this guy? Because I'm thinking this, I thought the guy was just going to attack him at any second. That scene is, uh, 
um, whenever people ask me what, why I like documentaries so much or what I like about documentaries, uh, sometimes I'll, I'll mention that specific scene to kind of give an idea of why I appreciate documentaries so much. Because when you think about that particular scene, they're shooting a Rolling Stones concert and the film is about the Rolling Stones and the, the main subject is Mick Jagger on the stage. Like when, when you're filming a concert, you're filming the band. And at some point the person behind the camera starts to realize that, you know, something else is going on. That's much bigger kind of than the band itself. And, you know, the Rolling Stones are huge so the decision is made to zoom past Mick Jagger, who is the main focus of the film. I mean, they, at this point, they don't know what the movie is going to turn out to be. It, it's just a Rolling Stones film at this point. So they have to make the decision to stop filming Mick Jagger. Like they do have other cameras covering him, but this person stops filming Mick Jagger and shoots past him and films a Hells Angels guy who's staring at him and that deliberate choice to avoid the subject of the film and completely on the spot change the entire destiny of this movie is what I love about documentaries because you know something like that can happen where what starts out to be a a, a concert film about the Rolling Stones ends up being Gimme Shelter and to to, to decide to do that on the spot is a pretty uh, interesting choice that you couldn't have in fiction filmmaking. Another good example of that would be Capturing the Freedmans, which started out as a clown entertainer documentary. And right. He found out that the one guy was this. Forget about the clown entertainer documentary. Bingo, you've got Capturing the Freedmans. I, you're right. It, this magic or whatever or, or you know you always think that documentaries have to be the hardest films to edit because you just take a lot and a lot and a lot and a lot and now you have to construct it into a narrative and this has got to be one of the better examples of how to make a narrative out of a documentary well that's why the Maisels credit their editors as co-directors um but the the example with capturing the freedmen's is a good one too because when you think about that movie, not only is the, you know, it's a kind of an obvious choice that if one of your clown subjects says his dad was, you know, once arrested for sodomizing kids in a basement, that you might consider going and jumping on that. But the, the, the hard part is how do you take this clown and say, okay, look, we started talking to you about this clown business for our clown film. But now we want to feature your sordid family past in our film. And we want you to allow us, to, you know, to give us, to trust us enough to tell your story to the world. And to win that sort of trust over from somebody is an insane task. Like, th th screw the filmmaking, the technical side of things. Try talking to somebody whose dad fucked kids and, you know, convince them to let you film a movie about them. And it's the same thing with the Maisels brothers. If you look at the subjects that they've worked with, I mean, they, they filmed the Beatles. Uh, they filmed the Stones. They've worked with Christo, the artist. And, you know, they, they have this knack of 
getting in with people, getting in on their good side. You know, they, they filmed Capote and uh, Marlon Brando. And so obviously they've got some sort of technique down where they can get this trust from their subjects and everyone looked at them as the guys to go to for, for documenting whatever they needed to have documented. The so-called intimate documentary. Because, right. I mean, this movie even opens up with um, the Stones watching, you know, the nasty footage, of course. The, the, the thing that makes the Altamont concert famous is that someone was knifed to death uh, right in front of the stage. Uh, and the movie actually opens with, uh, with the Stones watching a guy being knifed to death at their own concert. Um, that's pretty heady stuff, yeah. Well, I and think... intimate. I think uh, it's a good point, too, that, you know, a good chunk of documentary filmmaking is working with people. And, um, you know, that's one of the things that makes Gimme Shelter different from, you know, like there's so many you can go to the store and and look at, you know, concert films or music DVDs. And, you know, 90 percent of those are just, you know, marketing tools for the band to, to market themselves. But here's a movie that, you know, it doesn't really make the Rolling Stones look good. But somehow they were able to gain the trust. The filmmakers were able to gain the trust of the Rolling Stones to do this. And, you know, it just results in such a a crazy inside look at something that you never could have gotten any other way. Well, look at the scene when they're in the recording studio and listening back to Wild Horses. And that scene that just starts on Keith Richards, I think it was Keith Richards' snakeskin boot kind of moving to the rhythm. And that whole scene is just them listening to that recording. And that's a pretty crazy moment in music history that the Maisels brothers were involved with. You know, they're involved with being there when when uh, the, the Stones were recording that song. And they were there when the Beatles first showed up in America. Yeah, because, of course, the I think that was... Um you know, Stones fans first look at a couple songs in this yeah. movie that they, they hadn't been released. They, they, they ended up being released a year or more or whatever after the film. So, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that is, that is a good scene. Actually. It's a nice, one of the few sort of quiet scenes in, uh, the documentary, everything else is building tension. Whereas the, the scene where they're in the recording studio there, uh, it, it has, there's a, there's a, like a Zen moment in there. Mm-hmm. And what do you, what did you guys think of Mick Jagger as a character? As a character, Unlikable. yeah. Unlikable. See, I think that's interesting. I think he could go either way. He's kind of a mystery in this. I think I kind of yeah, find him is a little bit vapid. Yeah, I I kind of find him unlikable as well. Though I I mean, there's the one scene in particular that I that stands out for me is when he uh, makes some comment about his pants. And saying to the audience, you wouldn't want my pants to fall off, would you? Like he's baiting them to get some sort of reaction to that. But like the, the, the onstage Mick Jagger seems completely different than the Mick Jagger that's in the editing studio watching, you know, the, the film going by on the, the flatbed. Yeah, that, I think what did it for me was the closing shot. Um, you know, he's just seen all of this unfold. I mean, he saw it, you know, unfold, obviously, but he's just seen it all again, and he just seems so disconnected and so nonchalant about it. It just, he just didn't come across as somebody that I'd like to know. Hmm. Just didn't like him. 
Yeah, he comes across as almost that that closing shot where they kick in to give me shelter. It, yeah. It's almost sinister. Yeah, it is. I was gonna say, what did you guys think of um, like you know the Maisel's brothers? I guess are known for that kind of cinema verite style of documentary where it's like you know they don't intrude too much on the the proceedings. They try to just sit back and film stuff as it happens and. You know, this definitely isn't like you hear documentary. It's not like, you know, you go in there and you've got these, you know, set up headshot interviews with, you know, title cards of who's who. You know, it's not like that at all. I mean, it's literally like you just watch the footage of the concert and watch the footage of them backstage or wherever. And and that's it. I mean, that's the movie. It's just edited in such a way to make a narrative out of it. What did you guys think of that style? Do you like that? You're talking about of them sort of watching it. Well, just no. In general, just the just the it, it's very hands off filmmaking. The the footage all speaks for itself. The the magic in their film for me is the editing. Is all speaking for its it's it's right. raw and it's and it's um you know if it was a modern film it would be shakier. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they're uh, what I think what looks deceivingly simple and maybe um raw and you know not not too finished is a lot harder than it looks to to follow subjects like that and you know they they refer to it as direct cinema i don't know if they came up with that term or or what but there whenever people are talking about cinema verite and documentary the mazel's brothers are right up there and there's a lot of people who are, you know, don't think that cinema verite holds the truth that uh, people claim it does. I know Werner Herzog uh, said something along the lines of cinema verite has about as much truth as an iceberg farting. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, maybe that's out of context, that quote or something. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, it's interesting that that style of filmmaking, because they don't concern themselves with lighting uh they don't concern themselves with uh you know focusing in the shot like in a lot of these films you'll see the cameraman zoom in on people's faces and then zoom out and there's a reason for that i mean they're zooming into focus on their eyes and then they zoom out and it just happens that if something interesting happens while they're doing that they're going to use it they're not going to scrap it just because they were you know checking their focus in the shot so it's all about before the uh they do i mean i i hesitate to use the phrase hedge their bets but they've got a good they had a good 40 you know 30 cameras running around during this concert so uh you know it reminds uh modern and and more low-tech version of that it was the uh the beastie boys had a uh, concert film called awesome i fucking shot that where they literally just handed out cameras and they said there's 50 cameras maybe we'll get something out of it maybe we won't and then they edit it together obviously not the sophistication of this but the same idea of raw right right direct direct is is a good word yeah i mean um i I guess this would be an example of one of the bigger mazel's productions i mean they they shooting a concert requires more than one camera I guarantee a lot of the stuff with them in the stones was just the two brothers. But um, even the, the concert footage is, even though they have 
everything set up to capture the concert, it still maintains that that style. It's not it's not like you two rattle and hum or something. It's very raw still. I prefer this style, absolutely. I mean, I think the the U2 rattle and hum style has its place, but I, I mean, you definitely what makes this film special is how raw it is. But I mean, one thing that kind of crossed my mind while watching it is that, um, you know, like there's there's things that are happening, and there's sometimes you don't have like especially like you know I I wasn't even born when this movie came out, and when all this stuff went down, like. I'm kind of like looking for something to contextualize some of what I'm seeing. And there's not a lot of like what there's not a lot of like explicit explanation of what's going on. You know what I mean? And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's a bad thing. I don't know. Cause all I know is like, as soon as the movie was done, I ran to the internet to kind of like get more of what, you know, the story was. And uh, so like, I don't know. Do you guys think like, do you feel like that, you know, the cinema verite style maybe is lacking because of that or. Mm, well, for me, I, I was sort of in the same place because I'm not familiar with the stones and I certainly didn't ever know about this film. So I don't know though if it took away from anything. I think if anything else, it adds to it because it sort of felt like I was just sort of looking in on something that had happened in history kind of thing. And I think that the extras are really important to... They add a nice nice features to the film. Like, I don't know if you guys bothered with the, uh, like, five-hour uh, radio interview that was included in the Criterion edition of the DVD, but I listened to bits and pieces of it, and I found that it added a lot more... It rounded out the picture for me. So I think maybe that it is lacking a little bit in that you don't really get... Um, the full details of everything that's going on. But on the other hand, it sort of encourages you to do a little bit more work on your own. And, I mean, the, work, the material is there. You just have to, you know, in, invest the time with it. I, that, extra, that extra bit of uh, interview footage was awesome. Like, that radio interview was, like the, I think, for me, it was even better than the movie, if I could say that. Because it well, just, it really, really rounded out the picture for me. The documentary and the DVD medium are a really happy mix because they are. all of the extras that you can throw onto a DVD, they totally uh, um, suit you know, what you're feeling. Like what you said, you ran to the computer after you were watching to get more. If, if every documentary should do that, <laughs> or it's not a very good documentary, you know, I mean... Because you can only do so much in 90 or even, you know, 100, 200 minutes. Um, and, uh, you know, no story is that simple. And, and this one, least of all, because there is so much American social fabric, you know, outside of the frame um, for this movie. Totally. I, I jump in here because, to be honest, through I was pretty underwhelmed by the whole film. Um, today a little bit I was doing a little bit more research and just looking at things like Marina checked out the, the radio interviews I was reading some stuff on Wikipedia and, and some other film reviews and stuff and I started to appreciate the movie a little bit more um, but I think I'm probably in the uh, the lone minority here where the film as a whole like the actual movie I mean, the interesting stuff doesn't even start for an hour into the movie. I think somebody said in the beginning, do you need to be a Rolling Stones fan to watch this movie? 
And the answer is, do you have to be? No. Um, does it help? Oh, yeah. Because the first, like, 45 minutes is the Rolling Stones performing at Madison Square Garden. And, like, and coming into the movie, the only thing I knew was it's a Rolling Stones concert, and then there's this there's this uh, fan fracas or what have you, and somebody dies. So I'm waiting for this to happen uh, at, at this Madison Square Garden. To be really honest, like I was slightly even confused at the beginning. I'm like, okay. And then there's this like five to ten minute long Tina Turner set where she plays a song. And so I'm sitting there going, okay, um, what's going on? And then, and then they show the fans and stuff. Uh, and there's fans jumping up on stage. I think the Hell's Angels were at this Madison Square Garden concert. Um, so that further confused me. There's fans running on stage and all of a sudden getting dragged off. I'm like, oh, yeah, I can see where this is going to be. Um, you know, this is going to escalate into something. And then they'll cut away to, like, the lawyers in the office setting up the concert. And they're talking about how one venue fell through. They got a... And, 80,000 cars are coming and then they cut back again to this Madison Square Garden show and I'm looking at the crowd and there's like maybe 20,000 people there and I was like this what this is weird I don't quite understand what's happening here well, and then uh, just I, I can kind of identify with what you're saying a bit I mean I think it's it's important to look at it as I think it started off as a concert film that kind of became right. more of a documentary as opposed to starting off Right. It gets derailed. It's it's a concert film, and it it maintains what it intended to be until it gets derailed, basically. Right. Well, I kind of just wish that, you know, maybe they had, you know, skipped the whole Madison Square Garden stuff. Once, they, once it became derailed and they realized, wow, this is a completely different film, um, they should have, in my opinion, they should have stuck with that as the movie. Because the like what an hour and a half maybe an hour and 45 minutes long and we don't even get to Altamont till the last like 40 minutes and that's where it starts uh, capturing the Freedmans is a great example what if the first hour of that movie was all about clowns and then only the last half hour was the um, the pedophile stuff <laughs> I would have been disappointed <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> It's a fair criticism, though. I, I, I must admit, when I, when, I had it on, um, the, when I had it on this time, the, the second 40 minutes is definitely stronger than the first 40 minutes. But on the other hand, the first 40 minutes starts to contextualize you as to the Stones' rhythm in, in America before that happens. So you do get this, um, you know, it's sort of like... Uh, you know, character building in a way. Um, you have to you have to see the norm a few times, yeah, to know that people do come up on stage. In fact, just when I was watching it just uh, earlier, um, you look at that the Madison Square Garden show, and hey, look at that! The stage is 14 feet high, <laughs> and then when you see the stage in Altamont, which is you know one and a half feet <laughs> or whatever, it it's like, uh, yeah, this was maybe uh, not the best way to run a concert. <laughs> I, I kind of look at it similar to like death proof in that, you know, how everything comes so late in the game with that. And, um, I, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess maybe because I am a Rolling Stones fan. So 
I enjoyed the first 45 minutes because I enjoy the stones Mm -hmm. and I can, I can see how someone wouldn't, if they're not really into that or if they go in thinking they're getting something other than a concert film, they'd be kind of checking their watch. And you know, the, the, uh, the filmmaking here isn't very, you know, breakneck speed. It's, it's very paced and it's, you, you do spend a lot of time in the office, uh, the lawyer's office with a lot of that that, business. Interesting. Yeah. Um, it's just like these full, full on, you know, two or three songs in a row. I, 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 you know, to be really honest, I fast forwarded through some of that. Can you, but can you imagine the Stones fans that were going to see the Rolling Stones "Give Me Shelter" if there were no performances? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. I, I think that this movie is much better if you're a Rolling Stones fan. It's it's basically a concert film that gets a little more interesting than the usual concert film. It's <laughs> yeah. you could either watch a, a Rolling Stones concert film that's just a straight, you know, documentation of a concert like uh Penny Baker's uh Ziggy uh Stardust uh and the Spiders from Mars film where it's just a concert or you can watch Gimme Shelter where you're going to get a concert but you're going to get someone stabbed <laughs> as a bonus. <laughs> yep, yeah, fair enough. And and I agree once once that whole once the crowd shows up and we start wandering around the fans and there's you know drugs and all that stuff and crazy people going on, that's when it started to get interesting for me as a casual film goer, not as a Rolling Stone fan. Right. And I, but I think the idea and, of expanding upon that too much would border on kind of exploitation and that kind of brings up something that i wanted to to mention uh i had posted a while ago on the documentary blog a review the original review of gimme shelter written by pauline kale and she's uh was a very well-known film critic and very controversial and her review of gimme shelter was scathing and let me just read the first paragraph of her review it's a short paragraph um how does one review this picture it's like reviewing the footage of president kennedy's assassination or lee harvey oswald's murder this movie is into complications and sleight of hand beyond perendello since the film death at altamont although of course unexpected was part of a cinema verite spectacular the free concert was staged and lighted to be photographed and the 300,000 people who attempted it were the unpaid cast of thousands. The violence and murder weren't scheduled, but the Maisel's brothers hit the cinema verite jackpot. And then she goes on to basically um, half-heartedly blame the filmmakers for what happened, as though it, it was kind of set up uh, that this was a bad idea to begin with, and they hit the jackpot and used this footage to their advantage. Uh, did did anyone else well, feel that argument, way? There's the old argument that uh, you know you can't always get observe. You can't observe something without interfering with it by observing it. You know what I mean? And that's got to be extra special, true with um, you know with film as a medium. I mean, obviously some of the best fake documentaries and fake documentary styled shows like BBC's The Office totally play on that. You get the sense that the actors in BBC's The Office are are playing two characters that they have to play sort of 
the one character, and then you have they have to play the same character how they would act if a camera was pointed at them. And 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 I think you have, I see where Kale's coming at it from the point of view of people are going to be extra on <laughs> if there's cameras pointed at them. But on the other hand, a concert of I have to imagine that the documentary crew running around despite its size would just fade in to the carnival, you know, atmosphere of it. So I, I, I see her point. I don't think it's as nearly as strong as she makes it. On the other hand, how could you not incorporate that into your documentary if, if you filmed it? It's just, you know, that it is the jackpot. You can't, just, you can't ignore it. <laughs> well, and, and that's, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, when she wrote her review, you know, how could she know that this would turn out to be, you know, I think it's a little more significant looking back now than it was maybe right when it was released, because now it really is such a a cultural landmark almost and like a sign of, you know, the times changing and stuff like that. And now it's kind of like you look back on it and it's like, well, you know, kind of glad that this was captured on a film because it's significant. And, um, but I just find it interesting that, you know, this kind of accusation would come to a movie like this when, you know, nowadays we have movies like the bridge, which, you know, is like just, you know, footage of people jumping off the golden gate bridge. Right. Well, it's kind of funny. Um, after you read that, that first paragraph of her review, I actually wrote in my notes that the, the actual incident, when it happens, when the guy gets knifed, um, was very Zapruder film esque. You know, it reminded me of that that the Zapruder film where Kennedy is shot. It's sort of it's just barely visible. You have to kind of pause it and freeze frame it. In fact, they do that in the film, right? McJagger says, "Wait a minute, can you rewind that?" And then they rewind it a little bit and pause it just so you can see the gun. And they're trying to figure out what happened. And so I can totally see her analogy there. Um, but as far as it you know, escalating because the there, I kind of tend to agree with Kurt that 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 doesn't seem very plausible because there's so much chaos already going on. A guy with a camera is not going to affect how I would behave. I don't think personally. But well, I, I read some interviews. I think or quotes from some of the the filmmakers or the uh, like the, the camera operators basically who were there. And, you know, a lot of them were, you know, scared for their lives. Like, you know, they were just as threatened as anybody else there. So it was kind of, uh, you know, it, they were just caught in the middle of it. And it really was something that grew on its own. I don't, you know, I don't know that having cameras there or not, I think it probably still would have happened. Well, that's something that's a part of the art of documentary filmmaking as well, especially this style of filmmaking is making yourself uh you know fit in so much you're going to film these people so often be around them so often that they don't even think twice about it after a while and of course in a case like this that's impossible but um when you're when you've got a subject that you're following there's a, a great documentary called the staircase um it's 6 hours and it's about a family whose their father is uh, on trial for murdering their mother. And he uh, says he didn't do it. He says she fell down a staircase. And the filmmakers are in the house with these people as this trial is occurring. And they're at the dinner table. 
they're as they're discussing their father's innocence. They're in the house as the media. Uh, there's a sign on the door that says, do not disturb. You know, please give us our our uh, privacy. But these filmmakers, they've allowed in the house. You know, they've uh, allowed them to invade their pi- uh, privacy. And they're there so often and in such intimate environments that it's like they become the fly on the wall. And I think that's possible. But I think it, it takes a skilled manipulator. Or time. Lots yeah. Of time. I mean, in a way... Yeah, in a one-on-one intimate situation, it's going to take a heck of a lot more time. But in a gigantic concert thing, I mean, the fact that this happens late in the, you know, the the final act, and it's the concert's been going on all day, and yeah, I, that that that's another solid argument for saying, you know, the crowd isn't collectively responding to uh, to the fact that you know maybe there's some more lights than there would be at another concert you know you know to make it more camera friendly or the fact that there's many camera crews and stuff wandering around so yeah uh, you know on this one i, I think uh, you know uh, paul and kale maybe uh, tooting their horn a little bit too loudly but that's part of her charm what i think set the whole thing off was that giant naked fat lady <laughs> that was crawling all over everybody in the audience. The what? I'm sorry. There was, there was a giant naked fat lady <laughs> that oh, crawled over everyone's heads up to the stage, and she looked like a, a witch. That set it off right there. Well, hey, speaking of sort of like manipulation or manipulating, I was reading, as I said, I just researched it a little bit more, and there were some people that were talking about who were actually there and stuff and saw this movie and the way I think even Kurt had said something about how it's not maybe quite in order and yeah, they the way they edited it, all the footage together is not in order of how things happen. They edited it so that it looks like it it kind of escalates as it goes along. I don't want to, I hope I'm not ruining the movie now for people, but apparently you know, some of the some of the harsher things actually happened before some of the lesser things. Um, you know, I, the Rolling Stones continued to play on for apparently several songs, and it was one of their great performances or whatever. Um, and, and there's a scene where I think Jefferson Airplane is playing, and um, you know, one of their guys gets knocked out by a Hell's Angel or something, and apparently that was put into the film in a different spot in time when it actually happened. So I don't know, do you feel like you were manipulated at all by the the experience of being there wasn't maybe quite as intense or quite as well a deal as it's they more it in, it's more intense because you're being manipulated, but I mean mm-hmm. it's hard to watch any film. There's no such thing as a film that doesn't manipulate and I think in this case it I like the fact that this film straddles a traditional documentary and a full-on narrative film. So you are actually <clears throat> tense documentaries that you can possibly watch. It's 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 edge of your seat at many times, and you can feel it boiling. And if they had to take some editorial license to get that, well, I'm sorry, uh, they're welcome in my book. It's yeah, it's still a film. Like it's still filmmaking and if there was no manipulation, we would probably be looking at a 300-hour film. <laughs> but um I it yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I it just um I don't think it's that important when things happened. Like I I it's almost like if there was a documentary about, 
you know, Hiroshima and in the documentary, Hiroshima happened in the late afternoon when really it happened in the early morning. And, you know, I don't know. It doesn't matter. Lots of people died anyways. It doesn't. Well, put it this way. I happen when to agree with you guys. I'm just, I was actually yeah. throwing it out there to see. Okay. Uh, well, it's a, it's a good uh, question because a lot of documentary filmmakers are, you know, raked over the coals over a lot of things like that. And it, it almost reminds me of someone who becomes a vegetarian. And as soon as you say you're a vegetarian, then the people will say, well, aren't your shoes made of leather? Isn't your belt made of leather? And it's like, when you say you're a documentary filmmaker, it's like, every single possible chance to point out some flaw in your ultimate truth is uh, important to people. And I, I don't think the ultimate truth is what a lot of pe- filmmakers are going for, but you know, you have to be honest, but it's still a film people. They do. The ultimate goal is to make a movie that is still enlightening and, and entertaining to a point, I guess. And it's like adapting a book or remaking a movie. You don't want to do it shot for shot. That would be your, you know, quote-unquote truth. You want to capture the spirit. You want to capture the essence. And this movie, in time, if they had to, you know, massage things time-wise to to capture and, and give you that essence as you know, them filmmakers as artists see that essence, then uh, bingo, uh, they, they nailed it on this one. And especially when you're working with as much footage as I'm sure they worked with to get everything in there and, you know, to make things run smoothly, there's, there's, I'm sure there's a lot of manipulation just for the fact that you want the film to be paced a certain way or to run smoothly or, or things to make sense. Maybe things just don't make sense the way that they actually were filmed in a chronological order. They have to move things around to make it more clear or, you know, you, you can't experience what happened there unless you were there, right? The, you know how it felt to be there. So by showing people some, some raw footage of, of that environment, you're not going to get that sense of, you know, looming doom or dread just from, uh, you know, a, a very basic shot of, you know, the ongoings at the concert in real time. You have to help people a little bit that weren't actually there to experience that feeling through, I guess, manipulative editing because it, it is filmmaking still. And it's the same techniques that fictional films use to, you know, get a, a emotion out of somebody when they're watching them. All right. Uh, well, I guess uh, maybe we should wrap up the discussion on Gimme Shelter and move on to Duck You Sucker. Uh, does anybody have any sort of uh, final comments on it? Uh, did you enjoy it? Would you recommend it to others or anything else? Uh, you want like a star rating? <laughs> I don't know. Did we do that last time? I don't think we no, did. But uh, I don't know. Would I recommend it to others? I, I think so. I mean, it definitely gets interesting, but as I said, you know, unless you're a Stones fan, you can fast forward through a lot of it. Just just the, the, the early concert footage. The later concert footage is important, obviously, but, you know, all the parts where they're at Madison Square Garden, it's a rock concert video. If you don't care about the Stones, you can get through that part, and it doesn't matter. Um, unless, you know, maybe you want to be slightly introduced to who the the band is i guess you know and there's some there's some other shots 
of them in the hotel room and just hanging out and some lingering shots on their faces that I just personally didn't really care about. I wanted to get to the, the story that I knew the movie was going to become. So that would be, that's the only recommendation I guess I would make. As for me, I, I'm not sure if I'd see it again. I guess I'd recommend it. Um, and even if not, as I think it captures, I think you guys have already mentioned it a fair bit, but it, it really captures a, a point in time and a change in culture. And I think for that, it's uh, definitely important. But I don't know. It just wasn't really my cup of tea. I can appreciate it, but not really my thing. You know, we didn't we didn't really. I don't want to drag on the conversation too much, but Marina's right. We didn't really touch too much about what this movie says about the change in culture and the end of the '60s. And flower children are just as susceptible to human acts of violence as anyone else. Maybe you can blame it on the Hell's Angels, maybe not. But um, you know, this was just really the end of an era, and it, you know, Woodstock where everything went swimmingly as far as violence goes, everything was happy and good, um, was maybe the fluke, and this was, that was, a la Woodstock 1999 when they did it again. Yeah. You don't have proper facilities, you don't have food, you don't have water. People are going to go crazy, and that's exactly what happened here. Plus, sorry, i got to mention this, there's one scene where... Before the concert happens, the camera's just sort of going through the, um, just going through the audience, filming people, random weird ass, you know, hippie, Peyton Ashbury type people, and there's this girl walking around the crowd asking for donations, and it's the uh, the anti Panther, anti Black Panther campaign or something, and she says straight up, "Yes, we're taking donations here. We want to, we want to imprison." these people we want to um get them into court or if necessary we'll injure them and if and if necessary go ahead and just straight up kill them they're only negroes negroes right (laughs) and it's just like live and let live if it feels good do it flower in the hair mentality no wonder this concert totally When, that uh, is a great. I mean, that's I'm a, glad you. I'm so glad you brought up that scene because when you're viewing it, passing through the the sort of politically correct revisionism and the backlash to that throughout the 90s, and you know the state of how racism is, the the face of racism is is different now than it was then, and that that's a great lightning moment right in the thing and it's right in the middle of the documentary it's a it's a great scene of just how casually blunt it is and that is why these sorts of right at the time like you used the phrase direct cinema or or, or instant social document that that mm-hmm. is that's what's great about uh, about this type of filmmaking i'm so glad you brought that up and i think that is deliberate or not deliberate message of what this movie ends up being is that the 60s are over, here we are moving into, you know, the 70s and the gangster and violence era. Well, just think about the uh, how much they could have done with this movie in terms of injecting some sort of outer, uh, like a reference to everything that was going on as far as the Vietnam War and everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, they didn't have to. It it, it represented all of that on its own and they didn't pander to that sort of connection 
But um, you mentioning that scene is actually, I think, a good segue to Duck, You Sucker, because both that's another connection of both movies kind of dealing with revolutionaries and, and the view of, of a revolution. Yeah. Um, so, I, Kurt, maybe uh, I can throw this to you, since I think you nominated this one, correct? That's right. Uh, so why don't you give us a, a little brief background on duck you sucker and uh why you thought it was worth watching well first of all i'm maybe this is a broad and sweeping assumption but i think that most people that you know watch a lot of movies or enjoy movies will find themselves at one point running into sergio leone he was just one of these great iconic filmmakers and a lot of his images are you know, highly known images, and you're going to run into, if you watch movies passionately, you're going to run into Leone at some point. And so, okay, the obvious one would be to, to pick, um, you know, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, or um, Once Upon a Time in the West, or even uh, Fistful of Dollars, which was the uh, remake of the Japanese uh, Yojimbo. But then, then with this anthology that came out, and um, Duck You Sucker was thrown in in a restored version because it was so hacked up and, and trashed and re-edited so many times. And and the movie, for me, is just so batshit crazy when you're watching it. It's just a fun... There are so many shifts in tone when you're watching this movie that I figured it would just... I figured it would get some interesting reactions because... The first half of the well, first of all, any movie um, that opens with a extended <laughs> quote from Chairman Mao, um, and it's a western, yeah. um, and then it goes on to sort of be, it's it's not really set in the traditional West because it's set in the 20th century, and part of it is an allegory for World War II, and on top of that, the first half is like the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's it's very much a it's up. It's it's funny. Uh, the characters are a little bit goofy, and then the second half is, you know, epic and tragic and 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 downright nasty and and more than a little insane. I mean, it's one of the most. When you think of a sort of auteur master filmmaker, you don't think necessarily for him to make something so schizophrenic uh, when you're watching it, and and. and I don't think that makes this a bad film. I actually, for some reason, that adds to the appeal for me. So um, I didn't introduce the film in any way, but that's, that's, that was my logic for. Uh, I mean, it's it's such a long film, uh, and there is a lot of plot in it. But um, yeah, that was my reasoning for uh, for throwing it on the table. Well, I think it was a great uh, recommendation. I'd never seen it. I had actually went out and bought the Sergio Leone. Know, box set that you're talking about, but um, in the 1920s, and I didn't know that when I watched it. Um, I'm sitting down watching, and it's it's a western, and there's horses and stuff, and then uh, one of the greatest character introductions I've ever seen <laughs> um, is when James Coburn shows up, and he drives up in a motorcycle, and I was like, oh, wow, this isn't a um, yeah. traditional Sergio. I've seen Fistful of Dollars and A Few Dollars More and all those. And I was like, wow, okay, so we have motorcycles. It was like Back to the Future 3. 
<laughs> yeah. And I, and then he you know he's in that uh, he's got those goggles on and the 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 he's totally his face is completely covered with a bandana. He doesn't even speak. He's just it's all body motions. Great character introduction and all of a sudden the the entire movie changed at least for me because I didn't know that it was when it was taking place just because he's riding on a motorcycle and I thought that was awesome. Yeah, I mean these movies have the best character introductions and the best sort of uh you know just cool representations of actors in in films. I mean it, it reminds me of when from Dust Till Dawn came out and Robert Rodriguez would constantly talk about how it was his goal to make George Clooney look like a star and he purposely shot him to look cool all the time and you know give him the the action shots and whatnot and that probably I'm sure that comes from Sergio Leone and that introduction is amazing and what's even more amazing is the music which is so you would almost say completely out of place but I love Ennio Morricone's music and mainly I love his kind of pop uh, soundtracks like for Endangered Diabolic and uh, he he does an awesome soundtrack in the movie Grand Slam where it's just got these really quirky uh, like organs and, and vocals and the vocals in this movie where <laughs> the character's name is Sean and the the actual vocals are going Sean Sean Sean, <laughs> which is right. you know like who even thinks to do that? Like it, anyone else doing it would be cheesy, but it's awesome. Well, I have to think that uh, some of the uh, Leone, whatever you know, peyote Leone was, was doing <laughs> while he was making this movie. I think he was passing it around the campfire because uh, yeah, that soundtrack. It's not just the. Sean, Sean, Sean part. It's also this sort of... Yeah. (laughs) And that's what... I think it adds to the goofiness at at the beginning, but then you actually get acclimatized to it, and it's a mixture of the movie. Uh, And it really does work with with the material. And you're right, it shouldn't. (laughs) Right, it's completely out of place, but for some reason it, it works entirely. Um, like, uh, you know, in some points, well, a, in some points it's like not even music. It's almost added sound effects more than it is a score, mm -hmm. but two, you know, there's some very, it's very chipper music in a lot of places and happy music while some really nasty, unpleasant shit is happening. (laughs) And it's like, it's so odd to hear this nice, happy piano song and people are being blown away. It was, that was that was kind of an odd uh, conglomeration there too. Mm-hmm. Well, it's kind of like Kurtz mentioned how the the movie kind of jumps, you know, a lot of different tones and shifts, and the music kind of, in a way, just embodies that. Like the music's just kind of, you know, jumping around, and you know, when you think it should be, you know, dramatic and and evil, it's not. But then sometimes it is, and like. Yeah, it's it's definitely an interesting soundtrack to an interesting movie. Well, you talk- mentioned the Sean thing. Um, that I just wanted to. This would be the only plot thing uh, that I go up, and I think that's one, always been one of the debatable arguments for this movie. And I'll just throw it out there. I mean, James Coburn's character's name is John 
Mallory, um, and his buddy, I thought, the, his buddy, who's played by a New Zealand actor, uh, David Warbeck, um, I thought his name was Sean. Um, well, they, they have this sort of flashback element, but I, and and I think, I think that there was always people assume that some of this flashback is a lie, or or, or I mean, you yourself uh, mentioned that you think that James Coburn's character's <coughs> name is Sean, or that he is Sean, uh, when his character's act, name is actually John. Well, I think he introduces himself as Sean, and. Yeah. Well, they, and Juan be. asks him, "What? What was your name?" And then he says, "John." Well, it could, because it isn't Sean the equivalent to John. Yeah, in Ireland? I was just gonna say I could probably clear that up because yeah, Sean is I believe the Irish Gaelic form of John, uh, and as we know, his character is an IRA uh, revolutionary or however you want to put it. So it should be noted that the IRA did not exist in the time period that this movie is set. Just another insane element (laughs) even though he plays an IRA guy the IRA didn't exist until a few years after when this movie was set anyway yeah I heard that part too I actually rewound it because I was like I swear he said Sean and he just what you said he said but changed it to John well yeah I guess because the guy wouldn't know he just changes it to John to keep it simple I guess right and then he's you know because Sean is just such a weird foreign name I know. <laughs> well, and that, but that, that does tie in nicely with the whole um, constant shifting identities. It's something that Leone loves to play with, how, you know, over the course of his long movies, you, you keep seeing different sides of these characters. You know, like, I mean, the opening for Rod Steiger's Bandito character, it, it just sums it all in a nutshell, like how you get him, you know, as almost, um, you know, obsequious at the beginning and then when he gets on the stagecoach and then there's a reversal and then over the course of the movie you constantly have identity reversals um and and so forth so i guess the name thing uh, just sort of adds to it yeah well that's one of the things i love like i love this movie this is i could probably watch this movie over and over just for if anything just to hear sean 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 <laughs> but um the the thing that I liked about it is the messed up friendship that they had going on between Juan and John and Juan is, you know, by the end of the movie, I'm like, you know what? I love Juan. That guy was awesome. <laughs> I love him. And then 10 minutes in, <laughs> but then you think, well, you know, Juan is a, a good guy, but 10 minutes into the movie, Juan was raping a, a woman. But, you know, you forget about Juan's <laughs> rape. You you just enjoy Juan for who he is, and that's just, a, just a good a, peasant. It's just one of his quirky personality traits, that's all. Well, in the He won me over in the end. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'd smack you if I could. <laughs> I was going to say, oh, my God. But, I mean, even after that scene where he does forget, did he actually rape her? Or was this consensual? Yeah, that there, it was. Yeah, yeah, it was very kind of just up in the air. I don't know, like yes, it's just of more of the charm of Juan. Well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, and there's a there's a huge earthiness to the whole scene. Not not only do all of the uh, you know the upper class end up in 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 pig shit, but the scene on the on the stage when they're all eating in incredible close-ups. That that is just screams 
Leone's need to get at the most sort of earthy and, and biological aspects of people. You know, I mean, all of his other movies do it with the extreme close-ups on the eyes and all the folds of the skin and the sweat and the dirt that gets into your into the folds of the skin uh, in, in the outdoors. But just uh, the, the soon-to-be uh, rape victim, um, you know, fumbling with that cherry during oh. the whole scene. It, it's almost, yeah, you, you know, I mean, you could almost interpret this level of she decries the barbarism, but, you know, she kind of wants it. Yeah, like that scene is the perfect example. If if someone wants to know what an extreme close up can do to a, a an audience, like what psychological effect it has on t- on the person watching, you just show them that scene because you've got m- like extreme close ups of mouths chewing food sloppily as this sound effect is like lapping over their you know post added dialogue. And it's it, it's so long that you actually feel somewhat revolted and, and it kind of makes you question like you, you're you're obvious. Uh, you're, you're thinking about the fact that there is these close ups on the screen where normally I don't think people really pay attention to something like that. Like you could have close ups show up and it could pass someone by without them really thinking twice about it. But with this, these close ups are in your face and they have a very obvious uh uh, you you have an obvious response to it, and that is disgusting. Uh, someone in one of the the extra features on the disc mentions how one critic uh, referred to that scene of the close ups of the mouths as it lo- saying it looked like the close ups of unwiped bottoms, <laughs> <laughs> which is disgusting. Well, it goes along with I, I was listening to the uh, a little bit of the commentary. And even before they said it, I was thinking, you know, it goes along with what they're saying. Because the things that you're hearing in that post-edited dialogue is all, like, racist shit. You know, it's, it's like, disgusting things that they're saying. So you couple that with this open mouths of crackers being chewed up and, you know, cream corn. Uh, and it, it's all disgusting. Or aural, A-U-R-A-L sound effect you know that's disgusting and the visual sound effect that's or the visual disgustingness and they sort of just go together and it sets up this beautiful savage class warfare which is sown through the entire um movie i i mean uh one has this large speech in the center of the film very very uh rich uh scene uh where you know he basically spouts the movie's message right into the audience quite often that annoys me in in movies not so much here because it it underscores everything that you've been seeing uh over the course of the movie of um you know you you have all the people that are fighting the war and then you've got the doctor in his carriage you know he's got you know you've got all the special treatment uh around the whole planners and then all the poor people you know do all the fighting and do all the dying and uh, they don't really know what's going on and the movie's quite angry at the uh, at the rich it's almost basically saying um, put your family first you should put your family and your friends first and your country second which is you know again I, I have to imagine that that was a very large message that made it so objectionable to the American 
censors. Um, it's almost like anti-national statement. Well, I think there wasn't there a scene where you had a book that actually said like something about nationalist something or other, and he was like, uh, I, I can't remember. He tosses exactly. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. it just basically like visually, it was like, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, get rid of nationalism. So there were so many moments throughout this movie that um, visually uh, or even, you know, combined with everything just had me blown away. There, there's one shot in particular that I uh, remember that will stand out for me, um, which is the it, the camera pans across this uh, the city and closes in on that propaganda poster. And then the eye is ripped out across uh, from behind and Rod Steiger steps in and replaces the eyes with his eyes peering out. Right. That was great visual scene. Yeah, definitely. And there's so many of those throughout this film. I mean, the shot of him holding that hat with the missing top up to his face, looking through it. And um, even the, when he first meets uh, Sean or John and he has this idea of him teaming up with him to rob the bank or, or whatnot. And, and you get that, uh, that kind of halo or the, what would you call that? The ribbon above him with the name of the bank on it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. (laughs) I was so just like stand out. It reminded me of Monty Python and the Holy Grail type of deal. Yeah. It's just another thing that doesn't necessarily belong and it could be just completely self-indulgent and annoying if it were any other movie, but I don't know. It just works for me. Everything he does. One of the the strongest images in the movie just seems way out of place is the sort of, um, you know, Nazi-esque slaughter pits. Yeah. Obviously, it was a huge scene to set up. There's there's like 500 plus people in this shot and the camera takes its time to pan across this massive villa of, of, of wholesale slaughter which you can't help but think of uh you know some sort of concentration camp purging uh, you watch it and and of course he's he's said it in the in the um in the mexican revolution it just seems like that uh and then you contrast it to earlier on in the film where it's uh you know Buddy says, "Well, I can. I know how to use dynamite. You just go and do that." And this, that scene's so goofy. Uh, and, and, yeah, it, it's almost hard to say. Wow, these. How are these films? Uh, these scenes fitting in the same film? And I think you make a, a really good argument that they don't. <laughs> but I don't know. It adds a certain charm to the to the whole affair because you just don't know what's going to happen next. What are they going to do next? <laughs> well, it's almost like he can't resist. Like he just can't resist moments like that, and maybe something is telling him he should resist a moment like that, but he just doesn't and does it anyways. Like he does have these serious scenes near the end of the film and, and you know, they're, they're great scenes, but that's not going to stop him from having fun. And, you know, he's not going to change for, for something like that. So that goes into the interesting story behind the title because, uh, um, the story goes apparently that Leone kept insisting to, um, James Coburn and uh, Peter Bogdanovich, who was actually attached to direct the film at one point, he kept insisting that the phrase "duck you sucker," which which ended up 
being the original title and the title that they've put back on now that they've restored the film, he kept insisting to them that that was a common American expression. <laughs> and they're like, uh, you know, especially in, uh, um, well, in both of their cases, they're like, uh, no, we'd have, we've never heard that expression. <laughs> and he's like, no, 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 it is, it is, just trust me, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's that, his desire for it outweighs maybe a, uh, uh, you know, a clear, rational thought. But uh, I don't know, I mean, many films, uh, <laughs> you know, any genre mashing pushing a bunch of stuff together that sort of we've gone right off the deep end vibe for me it it's it's part of the selling it's part of the selling point it's totally it's a horrible name it's a horrible title yeah but it goes past horrible (laughs) kind of cool i agree totally i agree but you know because it it goes to sort of the goofiness of the movie and and sergio leone especially the whole beginning of the movie but it just reminds me of when you said Duck, You Sucker the first time, and I was like, really? That Mr. T movie? Uh, I'm going to get you, sucker. The movie you want to review? So, I, yeah, it's kind of a goofy title, but I agree with you. It's, it just works for whatever reason because it's this movie. Well, I think it's interesting, too. Like, I mean, I guess Sergio Leone, you know, he's, he's got the, the classic films that people know. And, and this one, like I hadn't heard of it, and I'm sure plenty of people have never heard of it. And uh, you know, when you sit down and watch it, um, uh, you know, it's probably, you know, I, I don't know all of his filmography, but I, you know, it seems like it's the craziest, you know, and and maybe that's, you know, it, for some people it could be a little too crazy, and you know, you sit down and and if you want it to all mesh into one cohesive whole, you might be kind of not understanding it but you know when you sit down and just watch it as a fan of film i guess and just enjoying each scene as it comes and there's just there's just a a sense of fun to the whole movie i think did anybody not like it well i'm not gonna surprisingly you guys picked a good one <laughs> well, well, it's funny when you say that, Marine, because we 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 got you in here. You weren't in on the last one when when at least uh, you know we had uh, little children that had at least a, a female character majority. Add female characters in Gimme Shelter and Duck You Sucker. You're added up with one who who we can't decide whether or not is a rape victim or a slave. Uh, so so it, it's kind of a heavy. Both films are heavy on the sausage, if you know what I mean. Well, and then there's Tina Turner giving fellatio to the microphone, which is... (laughs) How could I forget that? (laughs) Oh, God. Well, but the thing is, I'm not a big fan of Westerns to boot. It's just not something that I watch of my own free will. Never got into them. But this one, I had a lot of fun. I'd totally watch it again. I'm actually considering I need to buy this DVD. Because it was a lot of fun. I'd watch it again. I'm kind of with you, too. Like, I'm not a big Western guy. And, you know, I think I'd like to go back and, and take in more of them, but this one, you know, especially for someone who hasn't seen a lot of Westerns, it's kind of like, wait a minute, this is a Western, you know, like, you know, just the, all the elements that are just don't belong in a typical Western. And I guess that's what makes it fun. But, uh, I, I don't know. I think Sergio Leone, like from just the sense that I get of his movies, I mean, he just he seems like he kind of goes beyond, you know, Westerns and, you know, like, isn't he pretty celebrated just for, you know, things like the extreme, extreme close-ups and just what he brought to style in, in film in general? 
Yeah, make no mistake. I mean, uh, yeah, he's known obviously for for the for his three big westerns. But even though his filmography is is much broader, and he he ended on that, you know, he wanted it ten hours long. He tried to get it to four hours, and it ended up being like three hours or whatever. The the gangster picture with uh, James Woods and Robert De Niro and uh, um, Once Upon a Time in America. Um, and. Uh, <clears throat> But no, you, yeah, he added so much. If you want to get all highbrow and eggheadish to like film grammar and 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 how stop film. And what's interesting is this is in between um, Once Upon a Time in America and uh, and The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly is sort of like a comic book. It's it's so much larger than life and and and, and comic book. And this movie is sort of some sort of bizarre not quite perfect transition to, uh, you know, much more humanist, which is uh, Once Upon a Time in America. And in fact, this is sort of, it got renamed A Fistful of Dynamite, um, which would imply that it went with A Fistful of Dollars and A Few Dollars More, which it couldn't be further from that. But one of the subtitles, the film's got so many different titles, was Once Upon a Time, dot, 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 The Revolution. And I think it sort of... That's a nice sandwich, the Once Upon a Time in, in, in the West, this one, and then Once Upon a Time in America is sort of a, a, a nice pest filmmaking. It's funny, I, I kind of characterize this movie as totally Sergio Leone style. It's like, it's like the same style as Fistful of Dollars and uh, Good, Bad, and the Ugly, but all of a sudden, it seems like he's got this budget behind him, and he's able to do now what he wants to do. So it's different from those movies, but yet the same. You know, you can, you can. I mean, it's obviously a Sergio Leone movie. If I didn't know it was Sergio Leone, I would have known it within three minutes, mostly by the Sean, Sean, Sean. But <laughs> it's, it's just obvious. Like he's got a budget now, and he can have armies and armored cars and all these fancy Blow props and, and big, right, right. Um, so, I mean, it's di- like you said, it's different, completely different from the other three, but it's still very obviously part of his repertoire. <clears throat> well, and I'm thinking, you know, if this, which is one of his lesser known films, is so damn good, what else am I missing? <laughs> oh, well, oh, the man Once Upon a Time in the West. <laughs> yeah, that, that trilogy is awesome. Uh, well, I mean, so this is the thing. It, it, it's, it sort of just opened a new door for me. Which is always good. But again, it's it's different. You know, the Man With No Name trilogy with the Clint Eastwood stuff, that is, when, when you say Western, that is your typical Western. It's guys on horseback and gunslingers and the duel in the street sort of stuff. Whereas this movie completely evolves as it goes along into an entirely different genre, almost. Well, it should be noted that in all of his traditional Westerns, it's very much mono a model one-on-one or you know one-on-three or whatever duels with pistols and mm-hmm. almost everything in this uh movie is automatic like heavy yeah. machine guns i don't believe some of those guns that they use did not exist was set in but uh, it's like one of those who cares things right yeah, well, just that, awesome. i get that whole sense about the movie even though he tried to add a lot of the you know heavy thematic weight, there there is a sort of you know throw it to the wind, who cares element about the movie that 
I kind of enjoy. Uh, you know, it's it's not as heavy. You know, if you went in trying to make a you know political heavy duty political message film, um, yeah, that got derailed much like the uh, the Stones documentary got derailed um, at some point, and it just turned into well, he couldn't really pull it all together, but there's nothing nothing particularly wrong with that. Of course, the rest of his movies, uh, they fit together uh, a lot more right. seamlessly. But this, you could view this as uh, almost like a um, <clears throat> like a greatest hits, you know, it's almost like him riffing. It's, it's, it's like a jazz version of, <laughs> of all of Leone's different bits and pieces uh, into one <laughs> almost free form <laughs> style. If there's one thing that he's really good at, and there are many things he's good at, but uh, it's shooting explosions. He captures an explosion with a sense of irresponsible danger like no other <laughs> filmmaker. It's completely. They're better than some of the stuff that you see in Hollywood today. Well, yeah. again, it's the whole... Someone brought up Death Proof earlier. It's the whole Death Proof argument. Uh, everything was done, obviously, totally practical. I mean... You know, when they blow up that bridge, they definitely blew up that bridge. <laughs> when they're pissing on ants, they're definitely pissing on ants. <laughs> Did you catch my wife was watching, uh, was watched the beginning, because uh, you always, any Sergio Leone scene, the opening scene, that, that can be, with Leone in particularly, the opening scene is absolutely crucial to the film, uh, and yeah, the pissing on ants has got obviously the allegorical, but then the goofy element. Did you did you catch the shadow joke? Yeah, but I I I was tr- trying to figure out if the shadow was his belt or his massive hammer because I'm pretty sure. My, my wife said that was my wife said is well someone's having fun with anatomy. Yeah, well because later on when he rapes the woman, she she's impressed by his hammer. <laughs> Or was that it his belt? Say, that would explain it. <laughs> she, yeah, she was impressed by his belt. <laughs> it's great how though that that opening scene starts off at like you know obviously the ants are being pissed on you know you know obviously the little people are going to suffer in this movie that's the the message and then immediately after follow it with a look at how big my dick joke is. <laughs> that's just the whole essence of the movie. What right there and that It's funny because you know Andrew when you asked like did anyone not like it it's kind of like this movie is not what's the word it's it's un not likable if that makes any sense it's just it's so ridiculous it's like well anything that you could criticize you could also say but he's just having fun and you know not everyone little china is the john carpenter (laughs) yeah that's a good that's a good comparison that pissing on ant scene though is awesome (laughs) i mean imagine uh Absolutely. A movie yeah, like, like how can you not be into the movie as within the first ten seconds? <laughs> yeah, like, starting with like, that, like, yeah. and uh, imagine they should have used that in them, the movie with the giant ants that attack. Imagine how much more sense it would have made if that movie started with someone pissing on a colony of ants. That would have been awesome. Good. Yeah, <laughs> really good into the other obscure <laughs> or insect films. You know, it's funny um, too. Uh, is uh, the the on the ants the camera sort of pans up to his face, Rod Seeger's face, and then that is also the absolute closing shot too. Like it freeze frames on his face, sort of looking into the distance. And I don't know if that was again deliberate or or what, but I I totally noticed that. I went, 
wow, that's how they opened the movie with Rod Steger's face sort of staring into the distance. And, mm-hmm. and then, then that, there's that dubbed line that, depending on which version of the movie watch is there or isn't isn't there, uh, is the, uh, you know, what about me? Mm-hmm. Uh, after all this, you know, either people got their heroic death or their comeuppance or everything was settled, um, you know, in, in the way a normal movie would settle like these sort of big iconic images, but then, yeah, you know what? It's it's a great line. I mean, like, what do you do after this? You had their story arc, and 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 he's just sort of left hanging. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, what do you guys? You guys want to have some final thoughts here? What do you, What are you going to give uh, Duck You Sucker out of two gr- two, two girls in one cup? <laughs> <laughs> I give it three girls and two cups. <laughs> uh, yeah, I would. Uh, I loved it. I, sure to, I I love the movie too. I'm not quite sure on the uh, the rating system there, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I I just loved it. I thought it was great. I would definitely watch it again. I mean, I bought the box set. Knowing that, well, I need I need to own these other three movies anyway. So even though all those movies are iconic, this is the one that you pull out of the box with the most devilish smile. That's why I suggested it of all of his movies. Like you know, you, know, you go here's Once Upon a Time in the West, really fantastic. Everything is perfect to go at the film. It's it's classy. It's 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 relevant. It's it's great. And you know, here's the good, the bad, and the ugly. It's a big comic book movie or, or here is just this visceral remake of the Japanese uh, of, of Yojimbo it, it's, it's dark and visceral and then here's this one I don't know what to make it but we're going to have fun with it <laughs> totally well just the name if you hand the, bo- the box set to someone and say which one do you want to watch they're going to say uh, duck you sucker obviously <laughs> I, I, I think one I just had to mention this because I like mentioning individual scenes but in the very beginning, when that stagecoach arrives, it's the most ridiculously lavish, gigantic stagecoach I've ever seen in any movie. It's like it's like a train car on wheels. It is. It's huge, and there's a bathroom in there. At one point, he opens it. I mean, it's a stagecoach with a bathroom. I've never seen that before. It's just it's got like twenty horses. That right there epitomizes the whole movie. Just like, we're going all out. This is going to be ridiculous. Enjoy. <laughs> totally. All right. Well, I guess is we're, we're going to wrap that up. Yeah, Let's well, up. I guess we can talk about uh, the next episode of the movie club. And I believe we've decided to do a post-apocalyptic edition. So, for Christmas. For Christmas. <laughs> so... Uh, so we're going to be doing John Carpenter's Escape from New York and uh, The Last Man on Earth, which, of course, is one of the movies that's based on the same story that I Am Legend uh, is drawn from, and that's coming out next month, so it kind of works. Um, so How many times has I Am Legend been made into a film? Because there's Omega Man with Charlton Heston as well. Yeah, so I think it's just... Just the three? I think so. As far as I know. As far as I know, it's only three as well. So, yeah, I've never seen that, so I'm looking forward to seeing that. Um, But, uh, yeah, so we hope you will join us uh, for the next episode, uh, which will come uh, one month from now, and uh, follow along with our discussion there. 
And uh, I guess we should mention we're, we're still in discussions about how to do uh, a website for the Movie Club podcast because we want to have sort of a central place for discussion about the movies that we watch. And uh, we're, we're going to try and set that up. It's not ready yet, but maybe by next episode we'll have something. Um, but in the meantime, you can email us at uh, each of our individual websites and, um, you know, let us know what you thought. Um, so do we want to just quickly uh, once again plug each of our sites so everybody knows who we are and where to find us? So, yeah. so yeah, I'm probably just, I'll post it, uh, I'll post this episode at moviepatron.com. It'll be on the blog, so just click blog at the top of the screen, and that will get you there. Okay. Yeah, um, and I'll post it as well. <laughs> at some website, I can't <laughs> I don't remember. I'll plug it for you. I love Marina's site. Mad About Movies is an awesome site where I go all the time for news uh, that's not thanks. about Justice League and Spider-Man <laughs> oh, 3. God. It's about good stuff, so there you go. Yeah, just shoot me now. Yeah, daily <laughs> stop for me, as is Film Junk. So, but we're doing Spider-Man 3 on the episode afterwards, right? <laughs> oh, I've yeah, got lots sure. of things to say about Spider-Man. Well, I'll tell you this. I just, it was Spider-Man, Rocket Robin Hood is coming out on DVD. Oh, my God. Part of that is tempting for me. Because <laughs> when you say Spider-Man, I always, uh, to be honest, I always think of those made-for-ten-bucks-in-Toronto animated 1960 Spider-Man cartoons. They will always be Spider-Man to me. <laughs> even though he spent, I don't know how many billions or millions of dollars making this trilogy of Spider-Man films, I always think of those cartoons that recycle the same footage over and over. And over. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for joining us and thanks for listening and uh, we'll see you guys again on the Movie Club Podcast. Sean, Sean, Sean. <laughs> Sean, Sean.